0: Christians should be good for the world, a positive force, a net gain. Jesus taught his followers to do to others what we would have others do to us, to love our enemies, to give freely, expecting nothing in return. And if you scan through history, you can find examples of this kind of good being done wherever and whenever there are Christians. So, for instance, the world's very first hospital hospital, was founded by a Christian pastor, Basil of Caesarea, in what's now Turkey, in the late fourth century. Or skip ahead to the present. One recent survey of the social impact of evangelical Protestant mission work around the world concluded that such mission work is, quote, significantly and robustly associated with higher levels of printing, education, economic development, organizational civil society, protection of private property, and rule of law, and with lower levels of corruption. Those all sound like good things to most people. So it stands to reason that the more Christians there are and the more faithful those Christians are, the better off the world will be. And the world should recognize that, right? More people treating others the way they want to be treated. More people loving their enemies more people giving freely without expecting any payback or kickback. If Christians are good for the world, then it seems reasonable for us Christians to expect the world's recognition, the world's thanks, the world's praise. So then why on earth does Jesus say in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me, before it hated you. This morning, we resume our series in the Gospel of John. We're looking at chapters 14 to 17 throughout the year. Our passage today is John 15, verses 18 to 27. Please turn there. It's on page 902 of the Pew Bibles. These chapters narrate an extended conversation between Jesus and his followers on the night before his crucifixion. In this farewell address... Jesus prepares his disciples both for his crucifixion and for the trials they will endure after he rises from the dead and ascends to the Father. What will it be like to follow Jesus when he's no longer there in person? That's a question that all of these chapters address, which is why they're so richly relevant for all of us who believe in Jesus. Here's John 15, verses 18 to 27. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now, they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now, They have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This passage answers two related questions. First, why does the world hate Christians? Second, what should we do? Why does the world hate Christians and what should we do? This sermon will have two points. Fair warning, the first point is going to be very long. And it's going to have 4 subpoints, four answers to the question we find in the passage. First, looking at verses 18 to 25, why does the world hate Christians? Why does the world hate Christians? Jesus' first answer, subpoint one, is in verses 18 to 19. It is, because you belong to Jesus, not to the world. Because you belong to Jesus not to the world. Look again at verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Now, you might be wondering, does the world really hate Christians? Don't Christians enjoy plenty of prestige and protections? Don't Christians enjoy many social advantages, whether here in America, in America or in other parts of the world? Isn't hate far too strong a word? Now it's important to be clear that Jesus is not promising that all Christians will be hated by the world in every way, at all times, in all places. In Matthew 5.16, he tells his disciples that others will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is not saying that hatred will be the world's sole and uniform response to Christians. But he is saying that Christians will be hated. Today, Christians are overtly persecuted in dozens of countries around the world In the past few years in Burma, governing authorities have destroyed more than 30 church buildings by heavy weapons attacks. Last year in Sudan, 13 Christian converts from Islam who had met for prayer were arrested and tortured. And you could get thousands upon thousands of examples of that kind of persecution around the world this year, last year, in a different country. In the past few weeks, American Christians have been expelled out of the country. Churches whose pastors our church has trained have been raided by authorities who then interrogated the pastors. Churches that used to assemble all as one like we're doing right now have had to split up and meet in several different homes. But persecution doesn't just occur abroad, and it doesn't just take the shape of official state-sponsored action. Opposition to Christians frequently takes the form of informal individual hostility. Members of our own church have been rejected by their families for embracing Christ, getting baptized, joining the church. Members of our own church have lost their jobs for simply answering questions about their faith that were posed to them by a coworker. And in fact, this kind of informal relational hostility that we even in America are more familiar with and are increasingly familiar with this kind of persecution is really what the New Testament has in mind. Most of the time, it speaks of the persecution of Christians. So, if you look at the whole book of 1 Peter, this seems to be the main background for 1 Peter. Uh, or the type of suffering that the Christians addressed in the book of Hebrews uh, were enduring. This seems to be the main kind of persecution the New Testament talks about. It does talk about state-sponsored persecution, like in the book of Revelation. Uh, But we shouldn't think that when the New Testament talks about persecution, well, that only addresses kind of what we see in more extreme scenarios. Maybe, you know, state-sponsored, threat of harm or death physically. Uh, This is the kind of thing we are familiar with. So back to Jesus' words in verses 18 and 19. Why does the world hate Christians? It's because we belong to him, not to the world. And as Jesus says in verse 18, the world hated him first. Jesus went about doing good, healing the sick, feeding the hungry. And yet, he was hated, he was opposed, he was mocked, he was betrayed, he was ultimately crucified. The world hated Jesus first, so we should not be surprised. We should not be thrown off when it hates us. We shouldn't think something bizarre is happening. We've seen what he suffered, and Jesus is saying, expect the same. But Jesus' words in verse 19 go a step deeper. They give us a deeper rationale for this. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The fact that we are not of the world means we Christians used to belong to the world, but we don't anymore. Our highest loyalties used to be worldly ones, but not anymore. Our deepest loves used to be worldly ones, but not anymore. And what removed us from the world's possession is Christ's choice. He chose us and made us his own. He plucked us out of the world. Why does all this provoke the world's hatred? It's because the world, that is the moral order of humanity opposed to God, resents any lack of conformity to itself. As Mark preached a couple weeks ago from Matthew chapter 10, when you become a follower of Jesus, you submit to him absolutely. That means that you obey him even if your family objects. It means you follow his commands even if friends or colleagues urge you to do the opposite. Following Christ means loving him more than you love anything in the world, and so the world resents Jesus for that love. The world envies Jesus for his claim on your affection and loyalty. Sisters sometimes struggle when one of them gets married. The new husband can seem like an intruder, an interloper. He presents a new and an exclusive claim on the one sister's loyalty, her affection. It seems like he steals her away. Jesus does steal a Christian away from the world. But it's not actually theft because we rightfully belong to him by both creation and redemption. And Jesus doesn't take us out of the world in a physical sense, but out from the world in the sense of our love and loyalty, our affection and devotion. So the conflict between the world and Christians is a war of loves. To follow Christ is to love him more than anything else. To follow Christ is to love what he loves. And since the world doesn't love Christ and doesn't love what he loves, it will hate those who love him. Did you know that during his earthly ministry, Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him? Earlier in John's gospel, chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus tells his brothers, the world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Here's that war of loves. Jesus testifies that the world loves the wrong thing. The world loves self rather than God. Sin rather than holiness. Because of that moral opposition between Jesus and the world, that's the root of the hostility. So if you're... Wondering, as you hear this, well, I'm a Christian, I'm doing my best to follow Jesus, but I don't feel like the world is hating me. I have a couple of questions for you, a couple of responses to that. One would be, is it possible that your life is not really distinct enough from the world for the world to tell the difference? Is it possible that your, world, your life isn't different enough from the people around you to attract that kind of hostility? That kind of opposition. And if that is the case, what might that say about the genuineness of your faith? Are you loving Jesus more than anything in the world? But I do think it's possible because this is not an absolute promise. This is not saying this will happen always at all times in all circumstances. I think it's possible to follow Christ faithfully and not uh, experience much of this on a regular basis. If that's you, I would encourage you to pray for faithfulness in the trial of prosperity. Pray for faithfulness amid the trial of ease. Pray that you would not be lured into a false kind of comfort, a false kind of ease in the world. Improve that perilous situation you're in of being well-liked. Note the way that your heart will be drawn to seek other people's approval because it seems to be coming. Pray for God to make you faithful. Pray for the same kind of spiritual alertness and watchfulness that would come more necessarily if you were being overtly opposed. Subpoint point two, Jesus' second answer. In verses 20 to 21, because you represent Jesus. Why does the world hate Christians? Because you represent Jesus. Look again at verses 20 and 21. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. In verse 20, Jesus is saying that if he, our master, encountered such rough treatment, We should not expect to get off any easier. We're his servants. We should not expect to get off better than he did. And Jesus is saying that we will experience the same range of responses that he encountered. If they persecuted me, many did. If they kept my word, some did, and some will. Again, as Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 34, from Mark's sermon a couple weeks ago, whenever the gospel is preached, it slices between people like a sword. It provokes a division. It divides those who believe in it from those who don't. Those are the only two responses, belief or unbelief, acceptance or rejection. And Jesus is saying that ultimately, people aren't responding to us. They're responding to him. This is such a crucial point to keep in mind whenever you experience opposition or hostility because you're a Christian. Assuming that what you're suffering is provoked simply by your belonging to Christ and being faithful to Christ and that it's not being provoked by your own sin, the hatred you're experiencing is ultimately aimed not at you, but at Christ. That's what Jesus says in verse 21 explicitly. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Those who don't know the Father will oppose the Son, and they will oppose the Son when they encounter him in our own words and deeds. They will do all this on account of his name because we represent him. They don't know who he is. They oppose him when they meet him through us. Christian, persecution isn't about you, it's about Christ. That should embolden you when your good deeds provoke rejection. It's Christ's own character that someone is rejecting. When Your sharing the good news provokes mockery. It's Christ that person is mocking. Whether they know it or not, that person is looking through you and seeing Christ. Whether they know it or not, that person is listening through you and hearing Christ. They aren't ultimately rejecting you, but Christ. This should also help you to be patient, to be loving, to be gentle. And to be merciful toward those who oppose you for Christ's sake. They're persecuting you is a hardship, but they're rejecting Christ is a tragedy. As a Christian, you bear Christ's name as we've sung. One with Christ I will encounter. Harm and hatred for his name. You're united to Christ, you represent Christ, you're his messenger. As Jesus says in Luke 10 verse 16, the one who hears you hears me and the one who rejects you rejects me and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. In verse 21, Jesus says, they will do all these things because they do not know him who sent me. So don't take opposition personally. The root of persecution is not what someone knows about you. It's what they don't know about God. Subpoint point three, verses 22 to 24. Because the world hates the Father and the Son. Because the world hates the Father and the Son. That's why the world hates Christians. Let's look at verses 22 to 24. <laughs> if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. In this section, Jesus is amplifying the point he just made in verse 21. The reason the world will hate his disciples is that they have already hated him and his father. Now, is Jesus saying in these verses that if he hadn't come in person, all the people of the place and time to which he came would be totally guiltless? Not at all. For one thing, it's only because of their sinful hearts, their sinful natures, that the people of Jesus' time and place rejected him. Their sin is the reason for their rejection. If you want a penetrating diagnosis of this spiritual dynamic, and it's relevant for all of us in all of our lives to whatever extent we even reject Christ on admonitions of us and his word, you can meditate this afternoon or this week on John three nineteen to 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The darkness is already there. The light just brought opposition, exposure. So Jesus here in verses 22 and 24, he's simply using an idiom. He's deliberately compressing his point. He's using sin in the singular to stand for the decisive sin, the greatest sin. And that sin is rejecting the revelation of God in person. He makes that explicit in verse 24, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. That's the sin that they would not otherwise have been guilty of. If you're not a Christian, we're very glad you're here. You might be surprised by how bracing, how stark, how oppositional Jesus' language is in this passage. Many people who aren't Christians think of themselves as kind of distant, neutral, kind of vaguely warm and respectful toward Jesus and his teaching. But do you see how Jesus, over and over again in this passage, just doesn't leave room for that kind of passive neutrality? He keeps talking, talking in such black and white, yes or no, accept or reject, love or hate kind of terms. Jesus is saying that his personal presence on earth forced a decision, either accept or reject. It required a verdict. All those who met him really only had two options, either confess that he's the son of God and savior Or reject him as a demon possessed liar. And today, here and now, this message spoken by Jesus, this message about Jesus, forces a decision on you. It requires a verdict from you. Not only that, but Jesus' message even puts you on trial. Are there any dark deeds in your life that you don't want exposed and brought to the light? Are there any loves deep down that when you do your best to bring them into the light, you know they're opposed to God? Are there any loves in the bottom of your heart that if it came to a decision between giving that up and following Jesus, you'd be hard pressed between the two? In verse 24, Jesus says that whoever saw him in his earthly ministry saw the Father also. As we saw back in John 14 a couple of months ago, he says the same thing. John John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, in both verses, Jesus is saying that he and the Father are one. They each possess the single, undivided, divine nature. They indwell each other. They share one being, one essence, and yet they're personally distinct as father and Son. So to see Jesus is to see God the Father, and to reject Jesus is to reject God the Father. Which means that if you reject Jesus, there's no way to be right with God. Jesus is saying that ultimately, you either accept or reject him, you either believe or dismiss him, and he is the only way to God, because he's not only the way to God, he's the God you need to find a way to. One final reason why the world hates Christians. Subpoint four, verse 25. Because of nothing you've done wrong. Verse 25. Why does the world hate Christians? Because of nothing you've done wrong. Look at verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. This uh, fulfillment of Scripture, as Jesus says, it took place first and foremost in his own life. The words Jesus cites here are from Psalm 69, verse 4. That's a psalm of David. David was the king of Israel a thousand years before the time of Christ. Here are a few other lines from this same psalm. Verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Verses 20 and 21. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. David's experience of persecution foreshadowed Christ's passion, his betrayal, his suffering, his death on a cross. The words David prayed back then found their fullest meaning in Christ's own experience of being hated without a cause. They hated me without a cause. That summarizes humanity's treatment of Christ in his earthly ministry, but it also summarizes all of humanity's treatment of God throughout our sad history. They hated me without a cause. What did God ever do for us? He created us. He created the world and everything in it. He made humanity rulers and stewards over creation to enjoy its goodness and extend its goodness, all to reflect and glorify God for his goodness. God has given each of us life, and he's given us the goodness of the earth, and he's continually upheld our lives and lavished us with his good gifts. But every single one of us, without exception, has hated God without a cause. We've all rebelled against him. We've all rejected him. We've all returned evil for good. And because God is perfectly good, he will call us all to account. He will one day judge us and expose every single way each of us has hated him without a cause. And he promises to repay with eternal suffering those who have hated and rejected him. But God is not only just and holy, he is also overflowing with mercy. We hated him without a cause, but he loved us without a cause at least without any cause in us. The only cause was his own love, his own mercy. In that overflowing mercy, he sent his eternal son, Jesus, into the world to love us and seek us and save us. He sent Jesus into the world ultimately to be hated without a cause, to be given up to death for our sake. He sent Jesus into the world to teach, to reveal, to show us who God is, and he sent him to save Jesus was given up to this kind of hatred according to God's eternal plan. It was God's plan all along that Jesus would be betrayed and rejected and crucified. It was God's plan all along that Jesus would die on the cross to pay for our sins. It was God's plan all along that Jesus would pay our debt, that he would rise from the dead, that he would triumph over death. And now it is God's love, God's desire, God's earnest plea to you today that if you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, that you would do so, that you would cease to reject him and accept him, that you would cease to oppose him and become one of his own through his love and mercy alone. If you don't trust in Christ, turn to him in faith. Rely on him only to save you. Here in verse 25, Jesus is helping his disciples understand what they're about to witness. They're about to see him hated without a cause, and they should not be surprised or shaken. This has been God's plan all along. This will fulfill scripture. This will bring about salvation. In quoting from this psalm, Jesus calls it their law. That is, he's referring to it as the scripture that is beloved and cherished by the Jews, the Jewish people. Now, Jesus isn't distancing himself or his disciples from the Old Testament. He's merely pointing out an irony. The very scriptures that Jesus' Jewish opponents cherish condemn the action that they're going to take against him. But why does Jesus quote this passage here and now? Why does he insert it when he's talking about his disciples being hated by the world? He does so to show yet one more sense in which his disciples' experience will mirror his own. The world hated Jesus without a cause. Soon they will hate his disciples without a cause. Persecution very often comes because of nothing you've done wrong. The persecution of God's people is God's own wise and mysterious plan. The persecution of God's people is the fulfillment of Scripture. This means that if you're a Christian, you need to expect opposition. Do not seek it or invite it. Do not do what you can to provoke it. But be prepared. Be ready to be opposed. In your workplace, there is no formula that can guarantee that you will be accepted, successful, and find favor with all of your colleagues if only you tick the right boxes. Be prepared, even in your workplace, to be the object of unfair, groundless opposition. Why does the world hate Christians? It's because you belong to Jesus, not the world. It's because you represent Jesus. It's because the world hates the Father and the Son, and it's because of nothing you've done wrong. Now, before we move on to the last two verses of our passage, I want to offer four more brief points of application about how we should respond to persecution, and I'll draw here on other New Testament passages. So, we are still in point one, extra application section. First, don't fear but trust. Don't fear but trust. You can just write these passages down, meditate on them later, use them to pray. 1 Peter 3.14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Not too many hashtag blessed on Instagram showing up with being persecuted for righteousness. But this is what the Bible calls blessed, Suffering. For righteousness. Then Peter says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't be afraid of the prospect of persecution. Don't be afraid in the midst of persecution. God is good, God is in control, God is wise. God will draw near to you and guide you and protect you and sustain you. Second, don't be crushed, but rejoice. Don't be crushed. But rejoice. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice because you have a reward that the world can neither give nor take away. Rejoice because you join the godly company of the prophets who were opposed by the world before you. Third, don't provoke persecution, but persevere in righteousness. Don't provoke persecution, but persevere in righteousness. Writing to Christian slaves in Asia Minor, Peter says in 1 Peter 2.20, For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It is possible to provoke opposition by sinning. It is possible that someone is opposing you because you're being obnoxious. Faithful Christians will be opposed. But being opposed does not guarantee you're being faithful. Examine your heart, examine your words, examine your conduct if you're being opposed. You're wondering about the causes. Involve godly and seasoned Christians in helping you think through that. Fourth, don't sin against those who hate you, but instead love them. Don't sin against those who hate you, but instead love them. In Romans 12, 14, Paul charges us, bless those who persecute you, Bless and do not curse them. Being sinned against never justifies sinning in response. Instead, be like Jesus who loved those who hated him and who prayed for those who persecuted him. You are never more like Christ than when you return love for hate. So those are some of the ways the rest of the New Testament tells us to respond to persecution. There's a blessing in it. And we should bless others when we experience it, even blessing those who persecute us. But what about this passage? What response to persecution does Jesus emphasize here? Point two. It's another question and its answer. No subpoints and much more briefly. Point two. What should we do? Bear witness by relying on the Spirit. Bear witness by relying on the Spirit. Jesus exhorts us to do this in verses 26 and 27. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Right now, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he's with them in person. And as we've seen, his personal presence is what provoked this confrontation, this conflict with the world. Now, how is it that this conflict is going to persist when Jesus is absent physically? Verse 26 tells us, Jesus will send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will bear witness about Jesus. Now, how Is the Spirit going to bear witness? What form will that witness take? How will other people encounter or have access to that witness? Jesus tells us in verse 27, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. In other words, the Spirit will bear witness to Christ through the apostles' own witness to him. Just like in Jesus' lifetime, some will hate Jesus as they meet him through that witness and some will receive him. Now, Jesus tells us a lot about who the Spirit is before he tells us what the Spirit does in verse 26. He names the Holy Spirit the helper. He's here for our aid. That Greek word could also be translated comforter, advocate, intercessor. The Holy Spirit doesn't just come alongside us to advocate for us. The Spirit also dwells within us to renew us and comfort us. The Spirit is God's help in person within you whatever you need the spirit has it to give and the and jesus names the spirit uh, he tells us rather that he will send the spirit from the father earlier we saw in john 14 26 that the father would send the spirit in the son's name but here he says he jesus will send the spirit from the father Both statements are true. There's no contradiction here. Both statements are complementary. The Father and the Son work inseparably. There's nothing that the Father does that the Son doesn't also do. And the Spirit belongs by nature to both the Father and the Son. We've confessed in the words of the Nicene Creed that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's a statement about the Spirit's eternal Being the Spirit's eternal mode of existence. So the Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son as from a single source. Now, the Spirit's mission, his being sent to indwell God's people, Jesus saying here that I will send him, that mission reflects and reveals. The Spirit's eternal origin from the Father and the Son. The Spirit's mission in time reveals His eternal procession. The Father sends the Spirit in the Son's name. And the Son sends the Spirit from the Father. Because the Spirit is eternally from the Father and the Son. You could say there's a rule we can discern in rightly reading Scripture, passages like John 14 about the Son and the Spirit, passages like this one about the Spirit. You could say there's a rule, which is some passages of Scripture bear witness to the Son and the Spirit being from another. That is, they exist from another. Their very being is from another. So like in John 5:26, where Jesus says, just as the Father has life in himself so also he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. Now, life in himself is something only God has. Everything else has life from God. To have life in yourself means you are God. Only God has life intrinsically, eternally. But Jesus says the Father has granted the Son to have life in himself. So that means he is God, but he is God from another. FROM THE FATHER. HE ETERNALLY HAS HIS BEING FROM THE FATHER. AND ONCE YOU SEE THAT PATTERN, IT APPLIES TO THE SON, YOU START TO SEE HOW IT APPLIES TO THE SPIRIT AS WELL. THE SPIRIT PROCEEDS FROM THE FATHER. WE'LL TALK ABOUT THAT PHRASE IN A MINUTE. JUST A HELPFUL LITTLE TOOL TO PUT IN YOUR BIBLE INTERPRETATION TOOLKIT. SOME PASSAGES REFLECT A KIND OF FROM ANOTHER RULE, ESPECIALLY IN JOHN'S GOSPEL. THE SON IS ETERNALLY FROM THE FATHER, THE SPIRIT IS FROM THE FATHER AND THE SON. Jesus also says that the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. The Spirit reveals the truth. The Spirit confirms the truth. The Spirit enables individuals to receive the truth. And finally, as we've just been discussing, the Spirit proceeds from the Father. Now, that one word here in this verse probably means uh, that the Spirit is sent from the Father, just like the Son is sent from the Father. So it's relating to His mission in time. But again, in light of John's whole gospel, where the missions of the Son and the Spirit reflect and reveal who they are eternally, this phrase confirms that the Spirit is eternally from the Father. That's why He acts from the Father. Now, what does the Spirit do in verse 26? He bears witness. He attests the truth. And He does this through the apostles. So these two verses are primarily about the ministry of Christ's first disciples, His apostles, his eyewitnesses, those who were with him from the beginning, that is, from John the Baptist's ministry, preparing for Jesus and pointing to Jesus, all the way through Jesus' earthly career, his death, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus' apostles were the first people to bring the gospel from Israel to other nations. They were Jesus' authorized representatives. Uh, He commissioned them personally as witnesses, and they were trustworthy, first of all, because they were there. They saw it all firsthand. And Jesus also promised the Holy Spirit to them to secure their faithful witness. We'll see more of that next week, Lord willing. So the first thing we should do with this passage, what is this passage telling us to do, is trust the apostles. Trust their written testimony to Christ that we have in Scripture. Sometimes well-meaning Christians will set the ministry of the Holy Spirit against the importance of the written word of God. Maybe Christians influenced by more charismatic or Pentecostal traditions, or frankly, sometimes even good old-fashioned Southern Baptists who want to appeal to a word from the Lord. God told me this, God told me that. If you're trying to appeal to the Spirit's ministry in a way where He gave you some special word that's only accessible to you that nobody else has ever heard, that you can't point to a chapter and verse, well, however well intentioned, you are in some measure setting that against Scripture's authoritative testimony, which is the Spirit's witness. However well meant it is to set the ministry of the Spirit against the inspired word, practically, theologically, it's a disaster. The Spirit bears witness to Christ, and He does so through the apostles. The only infallible access we have to the Spirit's witness is the written testimony of the apostles. If you want the Spirit to minister to you, listen to His testimony in His Word. That's why we're so dogged as a church about making the Bible central to what we do in our gatherings. It's why we pastors delight to preach expository sermons, The agenda of the sermon is set by the agenda of the text. I do not have any other agenda in this sermon than to explain and apply these 10 verses. I do not have any other agenda in this pulpit all year whenever I'm up here other than to explain and apply these four chapters of John. This is why we publicly read Scripture. It's why we study it on Wednesday night. It's it's why we exhort and encourage you to study Scripture in small groups and privately and in your homes but in addition to attending to the apostles' testimony, this passage also at least implies that we too are witnesses. We too are called to bear witness. We too have received the witness of the Spirit in his inspired testimony. We too have the witness of the Spirit within us. We too have been commissioned by Jesus in his parting words, the great commission of Matthew 28:19, to make disciples of all nations. So even though we don't have the office of apostles, we do share their task. We all are responsible to tell others who Jesus is and what he's done. And in light of the hatred of the world that we've been considering all sermon, one of the main obstacles we're going to face in that is fear. Won't telling others about Jesus provoke more hatred, more opposition? Won't it spend all the capital I have? Won't it rock the boat? Won't it make waves when I've not yet made waves? In all likelihood, yes, it will. But that's no reason not to do it. Think about all that might motivate a trustworthy witness not to testify in court. Perhaps they simply don't want the hassle, the trouble, There could be media exposure that would be harmful to them and that they'd rather not deal with. They might fear mixing up the facts. They might fear getting cross-examined by a hostile prosecutor. In extreme cases, they might even fear physical harm as payback from an ill-intentioned defendant. But brothers and sisters, when we bear witness, we do so on behalf of the King of Kings, We bear witness on behalf of one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. No one can ultimately harm you. Anything you lose now in the faithful service of Christ, he can and will more than repay when he comes in his kingdom. And we bear witness in the power of the Spirit. We bear witness with the Spirit himself speaking through us. So when you tell others about Jesus, you have nothing to fear. The Spirit will empower you. And if he wills, he can give new life to anyone who hears you. If you want encouragement to bear witness to Christ, then meditate on the Spirit's own witness. The Spirit's own witness to you and in you and through you. When people oppose you, it's Christ they're opposing. And when you testify to Christ, it's the Spirit bearing witness through you. So how should we respond to persecution? We shouldn't let it silence us. Instead, we should remain faithful to Christ and we should bear faithful witness to Christ. We should speak up and rely on the Spirit. And that's what we should pray for brothers and sisters around the world who face more intense persecution. We should pray that they would be faithful to Christ and bear faithful witness to Christ. Persecution is intended to scare and silence Christians, but very often it has precisely the opposite effect. As Paul says in Philippians 1, verse 12, speaking of his imprisonment for preaching Christ, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So how should you respond to persecution? Speak up and rely on the Spirit. Bear witness and ask the perfect witness to empower you. This whole section Of John's gospel is about how when Jesus leaves his disciples alone physically, he will not leave them alone. He will send his spirit, he will come in person, in the person of his spirit. Even if your family forsakes you because of your testimony to Christ, you're not alone you have the spirit dwelling in you. Christ is your older brother and God is your father and the whole family of God are your brothers and sisters. Even if you get thrown into prison for your witness to Christ, you aren't alone there. Christ is with you. Christ is in you by his spirit. And however alone you feel, I know that Some of you are the only Christians in your workplace. Some of you feel like the only Christians in your field. Some of you might be the only Christians in your school. However alone you feel, you aren't alone. You have the whole body of Christ to encourage and sustain you, and you have the Spirit within you to equip and sustain you and bear witness through you. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe shall not thee overflow, for I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you That you have not left us alone, but you have sent us your Spirit through your Son. We pray that we would rely on the work of the Spirit in us. We pray that you would teach us this week what it means to rely on the Spirit, especially when we anticipate any opposition, any hostility, any hatred for Christ's sake. Holy Spirit, be with us and comfort us. May our lives glorify Christ because of your ministry in us. Amen.